You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Mark Schatzker. Uh, Mark is a writer based in Toronto. He's the writer-in-residence at the Modern Diet and Physiology Research Centre at Yale. And um, he's also a frequent um, journalist. And he is the author of three books, The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavour, Steak, one man search for the world's tastiest piece of beef. And as, as many of you know, I'm a dual citizen. I have Argentine nationality. So that's a book I need to read. I think the Argentine thing is going to come up later. It, it is relevant. And, um, his most recent book, which I've invited him here to talk about is called The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, so I think we're going to begin by um, reading a passage from the from the book to give people a taste of it. No pun intended. So as to give a little bit of background, I was attending a bean festival of Italy and in Italy um, in the uh, Dolomite Mountains. And I, and I was struck by something... Well, by the conversation that ensued, and it, it sort of led into an insight between cultural differences in, t- in terms of how Italians approach food and also some of the diseases appro- associated with food versus how we do. Um, so th- this is just after I'd spoken to a gentleman named Enzo, a bean farmer, who was so pure in his love of these beans from a town called Lamon that he would just cook them, uh, boil them, and dress them in a neutral olive oil. He didn't want to you know, muddy the taste with, with olive oil. So he would just use a neutral vegetable oil, pardon me. So here I go. Enzo is just average. Giuliano, trim and wearing a green v-neck, one-upped Enzo and announced that he doesn't just eat beans every day during the harvest, but every day of every week, 52 weeks a year. He brews big pots of minestrone and depletes it bowl by bowl. The flavor improves every day, he explained to me, until the pot runs dry and the cycle begins anew. Exactly how one should prepare a lemon bean is a matter of sometimes heated disagreement. Enzo celebrates a purism that verges on the severe. He boils his beans and then dresses them in a neutral vegetable oil. I don't want the flavor of olive oil covering them up, he told me. An older woman named Margarita butted in to say that a raw onion should be added during boiling. She was interrupted by another woman who said, add rosemary too. These disputes are petty compared with the larger question of exactly which lemon bean variety is best. There are four. Spagnol, Spagnolette, Canalino, and Canalega. To anyone not from Lamon, they can be hard to tell apart. Locally, each bean has a devout following. According to Margarita, Calanega is best, unquestionably, because it has the thinnest skin. Tiziana, president of the Consortium of Bean Growers, politely but strongly disagreed, saying Spagnolette is best. 
This is when the thunderbolt struck. Here I was in an Italian mountain village, listening to yet another disagreement about food. No matter where I went or whom I talked to, all conversations about food invariably descended into disagreement. Even in the country with the most delicious food in the world, in a town famous for its beans, no one could seem to agree on anything. There was, however, a difference. When Americans argue about food, they bicker about nutrients, carbs, fat, ketones, insulin, the glycemic index. Over in Italy, the quarrel is over recipes, pancetta versus sausage, spagnol or cannolega. It is the difference I realized between the old road and the new road. Road. When Pellagra raged, America blamed food. More than a century later, it still sees food as a slow-acting poison. In Italy, food wasn't the cause of Pellagra, it was the solution. Decades later, food's goodness isn't questioned so much as revered. This is the quintessential American question about food. How will this affect my body? This is the quintessential Italian question about food. Is this the best recipe? Thank you so much, Mark. So um, I think um, there are so many different places where we could begin, but perhaps one good place would be, um, you mentioned Pellagra there in that passage, and one of the most fascinating stories that you tell in this book is is about Pellagra and the the treatment of Pellagra. And Pellagra um, is a, a deficiency, vitamin deficiency disease that was prevalent during the 18th and 19th and into the early 20th centuries in Italy, in some parts of Italy, and also in some parts of the United States, um, and later in some parts of the United States. And the Italian and the US approaches to tackling the problem of, of pellagra were diametrically opposite. And you suggest that this might have had um, quite far-reaching effects on Italian versus American nutrition. Would you like to retell that story for us? Yeah. So pellagra, one of the first people to notice pellagra was the, um, the famous um, German poet, um, Goethe, and he was on traveling in in Italy when he noticed it for the first time, and it it would grow into a raging pandemic. And at the time, nobody knew what it was. They called it rough skin in the local dialect, pellagra, and this is what it became known as. Um, it has certain um, echoes, or, or or our era has echoes of it, because there was a whole kind of rotating cast of experts that thought they knew the cause, and and the causes were just absolutely bizarre. Um, they thought some thought it had to do with how the distance you lived from a river or a body of water um, too close or uh, far away was good, but it, you know a certain midpoint was terrible. Uh, some people thought it had to do with spores that get into your skin and explode, burst into flame. Um, Pellagra mysteriously suddenly appeared in the U.S. I think it was Georgia in 1904, and it it began to spread. Uh, it spread from village to village, state to state, and and from the appearance that it had the the look of a disease, an infectious disease. And once again, there was more disagreement. Some experts said it was spread by flies. Was it sand flies? Was it mosquitoes? Some said it was a bacterium. Um, it was expert after expert, expert pounding their fist in utter certainty as to what the cause was, and yet nobody could do a thing about it. Um, it was ultimately unraveled by Paul Goldberger, an epidemiologist, who, who came to a sanatorium in Georgia and had a very strange theory. He, he said, don't change the bedding, don't mop the floors. He started feeding the inmates, things like beans and milk and cheese, and everybody thought he was nuts, but it worked. This diet seemed to cure this disease. It was very controversial. 
For a long time, nobody believed him. He, he actually caused pellagra in a group of prison inmates by feeding them a certain diet. He even had um, pellagra parties where he would make a dough from from things like um, you know the snot and blood and 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 just you know horrible bodily fluids from people <laughs> with pellagra, and he ate it. And his research associates ate it, and his wife would eat it, and they did not get pellagra. Did he get Fin divorced? No, I don't think he got divorced either. <laughs> um, finally, um, his view was accepted, and this was um, th this was important in our understanding of food because he showed that food isn't just food; that there are essential elements in food that are necessary for the continuation of life, um, and we now call these essential um, essential nutrients. Specifically, what he found to be the cause, well, eventually would be found by other scientists, was that pellagra was caused by a deficiency of niacin or vitamin B3. Um, now, this is where things get interesting, because we have two cultures, Northern Italy and the American South, which at the time were very similar, agriculturally based, both backward, both very poor. Um, and um, the way they responded to pellagra, I think, tells us a lot about how we understand food. So in the United States, the understanding was that food is by its very nature incomplete, that you can eat what we regard as food and be malnourished by it. And furthermore, we don't know what's good for us because here were these southern farmers eating a diet that was effectively killing them. So the government stepped in in the early 1940s and passed the enrichment laws. And these were laws that encouraged, but effectively made law, the addition of B vitamins, thiamine, riboflavin, and niacin, along with iron, first to white bread, but then uh, you know, to, to pasta, to white flour, and eventually to pretty much all of our processed carbs, you know, white rice and corn, we enrich our processed carbs. And it had an absolutely almost magical effect. Uh, seemingly overnight, pellagra was just wiped off the map. It was such a wonderful marriage of the emerging science of nutrition and public policy. It eradicated a, a devastating nutritional deficiency. It was gone. I mean, we don't see cases of pellagra anymore, other than you know rare things like people with severe alcoholism. Over in Italy, the response was completely different. They they could have um, um, mandated the addition of niacin to the polenta that all these um, uh, you know peasants in Veneto were eating, but they didn't do that. Th their response seemed almost like medieval. Um, they said things like the poor should have communal bread ovens and they should raise rabbits because rabbits are a cheap source of meat. Some people even said they should drink wine, which seems almost hilarious. I mean, someone with a nutritional deficiency and your advice to them is drink wine. And yet it actually wasn't bad advice because the wines of the day were not very well filtered as they are now. They had lots of yeast and yeast has a lot of niacin in it. So Somebody had pellagra, you know, 120 years ago in Italy, giving them a glass of red wine to drink actually wasn't a bad thing to do. But here's the interesting thing. The Italian approach, this kind of medieval, you know, vino and bread approach actually worked. Um, Ital Italy, northern Italy, ate its way out of a nutritional deficiency. It took longer. It wasn't as quick. It took longer, but they ate their way out of the deficiency. And what is so interesting is that if you, for you know, push the clock forward a century, things could not be more different. If you look at the American South, it graduated from one nutritional disaster to another. What was formerly the pellagra belt is now called the obesity belt or the diabetes belt. It has the highest rates of um, obesity and metabolic disease. 
uh, the, this, the lesson would seem to be, if you look at the American South, that you really, we can't win with food. We're either going to starve or eat ourselves into an early grave. However, you look at Northern Italy, and Northern Italy is an Alice in Wonderland, upside down, bizarro world where nothing seems to make sense, according to everything we've been told about obesity. Northern Italy, Northern Italians enjoy an absolutely wonderful diet. Um, Bologna is kind of the culinary epicenter of Northern Italy. And it is a, a hotspot for tourists from around the world. People fly by the plane load to northern Italy so they can eat as the Italians eat. They have had, you know, very firm thoughts about how to make mortadella, which we call bologna, which comes from this, that, that root bologna, since the 1700s. They have a repository of official recipe, uh, recipes at the Chamber of Commerce, which is to say, if you're going to make lasagna or tortellini, these recipes that they hold dear, they say this is how it must be made. And their favorite noodle, they love pasta, and their favorite noodle is called the tagliatella noodle. Um, and they love it so much that they have a perfect version cast in gold. Well, we typically think that it is the pleasures of the table that do us in. Um, we talk about foods being hyper-palatable. Well, if that were the case, you'd expect the Northern Italians to be the absolute plumpest in the world. And what we find is that they have an astonishingly low rate of obesity at uh, less than 8%. Um, it, can, it can vary depending on, on exactly what numbers you're looking at, but certainly you can easily say less than 10%. Compared to a rate of obesity in the U.S., at more than 42%. Um, so this really seems to defy so much of what we think about what causes this sort of epidemic of overeating. And, and what is so interesting to look at is this cultural approach to food. America looked at food as being imperfect and took, a, you know, took it upon itself to improve food. And we've had um, innovation upon innovation of, of improvements to food. We enrich food. We've invented things like um, fat replacers and artificial sweeteners. We think technology can improve upon the sort of dim-witted creations of nature and, and that we can impose this on our own dim-witted appetite. Italians did not see food as the cause of pellagra. They saw poverty as the cause and they saw food as the cure. And as, as kind of humorous, and medieval as their approach might seem, it was undeniably more effective. And their diet today, um, delicious, I mean, famous for how much people enjoy it, is doing a far better job of nourishing them, even though it may not be based on the most recent cutting edge findings in science, it clearly works. They enjoy their food and they have a healthy relationship with it. So I think this can teach us an awful lot about, about what it is about food and our relationship with it that we're getting wrong. I think as I, as I was reading your book, I was thinking a lot about um, the distinction between delicious food and hyper palatable food. And mm -hmm. it seems that at least for some people, so I have some skepticism also about this explanation and I'll, I'll kind of get onto why later, but one kind of, one sort of hypothesis might be that there are, certain foods which seem to, for some reason, have a very strong uh, effect on, on our dopamine, on the pleasure-seeking hormone, um, mm -hmm. and lead us to want to eat more and more of them. And they are delicious enough that we keep eating, but somehow don't really satisfy um, those kind of, those, those moorish foods, you know, 
um, of which the Dorito is the, is the kind of, um, the classic example. I haven't read your other book, The Dorito Effect, but, um, crisps, you know, are one of the kind of classic examples of food that's, it's, it's not that wonderful. You know, crisps are nothing like as tasty as a really nice steak or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, you can go on eating crisps seemingly forever. As like, like they say in the adverts, once you, once you pop, you can't stop. Once you open up your pack of Pringles, um, you can, you find that you've sort of devoured half the pack and they just kind of dissolve on the tongue. And afterwards, I at least personally don't feel like I've had dinner, even though I've had as many calories as would have been in dinner and probably more calories than would have been in my dinner if I binge on crisps or chocolate or something. I I totally agree with you. And and I think what this gets at is the, is the difficulty of, of talking about these experiences we have with food that we call pleasurable because, or, you know, we use the word delicious because it can mean different things in different contexts. And I think there's different meanings of that word. And and so I, I, I totally agree with this. I think, you know, crisps, you know, potato chips, we call them in North America are a perfect example. I I don't know of anybody who who would have a fond memory of a, of a bag of potato chips they had in Italy and, you know, on their honeymoon or something. And yet they, they have this strange pull over us that as soon as we see them, we're drawn to have one. And if you, if you are kind of reflective and introspective as you eat potato chips, I think what you find is they don't deliver an immersive, startling pleasure. What they do is they, they essentially prime you for the next bite. There's something about the crunch that is perhaps a little bit satisfying, but what it really does is prime you for the desire for more crunch. So I think these very much play on this dopamine system, which is the motivation, the desire system. And these foods are really about eating more. Now, I would say that any pleasurable food experience should have that as a component. Um, when you, like you made the reference to a delicious steak, I love good steak. And I think one of the wonderful things about when you, when you bite into a really tasty steak is, of course, you have this desire to take another bite. But there is more dimension to it than that. There's also the immersive pleasure of just enjoying the bite, not trying to chew it quickly and, and swallow it down so you can get the next bite in. And then there's also the satiety component of that hunger coming to an end. And then this kind of reflective post-meal experience where you feel good. And now these are things that um, we can talk about and they make sense to us. But I think the actual science of, of ingestive behavior has done a relatively poor job of trying to comprehend. So we have all these scientists talking about hyperpalatable foods. And I don't think these foods represent anything close to the apex of, of, of the joy and pleasure that food can give us. They just put us into this sort of um, reinforcing pattern of, of stuffing our faces. And I think it's important to, to understand that and to distinguish that from pleasure. Because one of the important, uh, one of the things I see as being problematic in this area is that people continue to associate pleasure with addiction. And that is a mistake. When you look at the uh, science of drug addiction, pleasure, pleasure left the picture ages ago. The addict no longer enjoys the drug to which he or she is addicted to. It's all about a very a reckless and destructive cycle of craving, cravings that are never satisfied. And we see similar things in people who have, um, uh, you know, difficult relationships with food. Hmm. Yeah. I, I just returning to the to the idea of the micronutrients, 
Um, so one of the one of the theories that you put forward in the book is that um, a large part of the problem is that we um, have evolved to seek out certain foods because those because of the mic not not just for their calories but because of the micronutrients that those foods contain and that we seek out not only specific micronutrients that are necessary to health but also um, have a tendency to seek out a complementary suite of micronutrients so we will so we will crave foods that complement each other in their micronutrient profile and so the fact that so many foods that would not usually have be enriched with micronutrients are enriched with micronutrients is for you one of the possible contributors to obesity um could you talk a bit more about that and maybe um tell listeners about your recent research with psychologist Jeff Brunstrom on this topic yeah. and I will I will link to that and everything else we mentioned um in the show notes so this is going to be a long answer but I think an interesting one um, when I wrote The Dorito Effect, that book looked at how food has changed through the lens of flavor. And, and very broadly, there's two complementary trends. Um, whole food, we're losing flavor because we've gotten much better at producing a lot of food, but that has come at the expense of quality. And at the same time, ultra-processed foods are getting more and more flavorful because we are literally producing flavors that are being lost on the farm in factories and in you know laying them onto processed foods. So the Dorito is a perfect example. The very first ever Dorito was just a salted tortilla chip sales bombed. Uh, Frito-Lay then created the taco-flavored Dorito, and um, it became a, a snack people couldn't famously could not stop eating. This is illustrative of the power of flavor, um, and it tells us that it's not just these, you know, these simple confections of salt, sugar, and fat, that there's something much more important going on. Well, that then leads to this interesting question of, you know, what is flavor? We sort of take it for granted, and all, you know, think that we like flavor, um, but why does it exist? Um, we tend to regard it as, as, as something, this sort of superfluous experience that's disconnected from nutrition. You know, we say if it tastes good, spit it out. But it's interesting, if you, if you look at the human body, you, you have a flavor detector sitting right in the middle of your face. It's your nose. And you, 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 um, you smell food as you eat. It's called retronasal olfaction. The, the vapors kind of waft up the back of your throat in that little hole. And... Um, and that gives food so much of its character. That's why food is so bland when you have a cold. Well, um, if you look at your DNA, um, it turns out that the chapter that takes up the most room, the very thickest chapter, is on how to make this flavor-sensing device, this chemical sensor that's sitting in the middle of your face. Well, what's it there for? Um, and this led me to the work of a, of a scientist named Fred Provenza, um, who, who's, whose work stands in a body of, of psychology that shows that animals have the ability to seek out foods with essential nutrients that they need. So I'll describe an experiment that Fred did. He would make sheep deficient in phosphorus. And he would then give them choices. Uh, he would give them a feed, a maple flavored feed. And as they ate this feed, he would, there would be this burst of phosphorus in their rumen, in their stomach that, you know, there's a tube going down their throat. So they never tasted it. It was an association he was setting up, the flavor of maple, maple with phosphorus. And what he found is that over time, the sheep learned to make this association that when they were in need of phosphorus, they would seek out maple. Now you might think, okay, well maybe just, you know, maple's delicious, who doesn't love maple syrup? Well, Fred's a good scientist, he's another group. And with this group, he paired phosphorus to coconut. And in that group, maple was paired to water. 
And in this group, he found if he makes them deficient in phosphorus, what do they seek out? Coconut. So the idea is that um, the brain can't sense essential nutrients. They're too stable. So what the brain does is sense um, things we can sense, these volatile compounds that our chemical detector, our nose detects, and associates them with the nutrients that, that are needed. So in this way, flavor is kind of like a map to the nutrients of the food world in which we live. So I argued in that book that humans, like animals, possess nutritional wisdom, that the foods, the dietary choices we make and the foods that we like aren't just based on this need for energy, and that tends to be the prevailing view is that we're just calorie mongers, that in fact, micronutrients play a role. Now, this was 100 years ago in fashion. People thought this was true, and, and there was a pediatrician in Chicago named Clara Davis, who did a famous experiment. She took 15 babies and she put them on a self-selection diet. So it's a remarkable experiment and it almost boggles the mind that this ever could have even happened. But she gave them access to 33 different foodstuffs, everything from beets and lettuce to, uh, to um, bone marrow and, and beef um, and banana. And nobody could encourage these babies. They didn't have utensils. They just ate what they wanted. And they came in, many of them were sick. They were from widows and prostitutes and, you know, women who couldn't care for their babies. They came in in a, in a poor state of health and they did a remarkable job of nourishing themselves. Perhaps the most interesting anecdote is a baby who came in with a severe case of rickets, which is a deficiency of vitamin D. And this baby was offered a glass of cod liver oil. And, and we all know kids hate cod liver oil. It is disgusting. And yet this baby of his own volition drank cod liver oil until the rickets disappeared and then never touched a drop. And that would truly seem to suggest that there is this, we have this ability that, that the, the foods that we ingest and that we crave and consume and then eat again are in some way in sync with our micronutrient needs. Well, that view fell out of favor. Um, the Clara Davis experiment has been criticized for various reasons, but the big problem is you can't repeat it. It's unethical to do that to babies. You can't take unhealthy babies and start, you know, experimenting on them. Um, we can do really interesting uh, experiments with animals, as Fred Provenza did, but you can't take a bunch of human subjects and make them deficient in phosphorus or vitamin C or vitamin D and then go, ha, huh, what are they going to start eating? That's just not going to pass the... Uh, the ethical board. So for decades, we had this problem that this was a, um, a question that we couldn't really study in humans. So, so the argument couldn't really be settled. Um, so in 2018, I was invited to give a keynote talk at the annual meeting for the Society for the Study of Ingestive Behavior. And I gave my talk and I made the case that nutritional wisdom exists and humans possess it. And I talked about, you know, the work of Fred Provenza, and I, I talked about the Clara Davis study, and I got into some interesting historical research. Um, you know, if you look, you know, perhaps the most famous nutritional deficiency is scurvy, which famously British sailors would suffer from when they start to go on ever longer oceanic voyages. Well, we all learn in school that, you know, scurvy was characterized by a swelling of the gums. That's true. Uh, and it was hideous, hideous swelling. There's all sorts of other absolutely awful um, symptoms, uh, old wounds would, would reopen. Wounds that had been healed for decades would reopen. But the very first symptom of scurvy was a craving for fruits and vegetables. And I described um, from a, a chaplain's diary, there was a ship called the Centurion, I think it was the 1763, um, terrible case of scurvy. They're throwing dead bodies overboard every day. 
They finally um, make a landfall on Juan Fernandez Island and they scramble to shore and they start eating wild moss, moss and wild turnips. And they spoke of how delicious and wonderful they tasted. Well, I don't think most people would consider wild turnips and moss that you're sort of scrambling around on the ground and shoving your face being delicious. So that would seem to be this idea of our palate orienting itself towards the needed nutrient. Anyway, the talk concludes. Uh, a very friendly English guy approaches me and he said, that was a great talk. I think you're probably wrong. Do you want to test it? And this was Jeff Brunstrom. He's an, um, uh, a, an experimental psychologist at the University of Bristol. And we spent the last four years meeting probably twice a month on Zoom, trying to figure out how we could test this. And we settled on showing people combinations of foods. Um, because when we choose to eat foods in combination, we're choosing a kind of an interesting nutritional outcome. So we sh what we did is there's a body of literature showing that um, if you show people pictures of food and ask them which ones they prefer, that this has a, a strong um, bearing on foods they actually eat. So we showed people pairs of fruits and vegetables, things like banana with strawberry or banana with, with blackberry or banana with celery versus banana with strawberry. And we just said, which pair do you prefer? Um, and we got lots and lots of data and we analyzed that data to look for patterns. And what we found is that the micronutrient content of these pairs seem to influence their being chosen. And it wasn't just that we choose micronutrients for their own sake, like, like micronutrients are always good. We actually had this tendency towards what we call micronutrient complementarity. So we need a whole bunch of micronutrients. It's not just vitamin C or just vitamin D or vitamin B, one, two, three, or six. We need them all. We also need all the minerals. And what we found is that we had a tendency to avoid excesses of a single micronutrient and instead would do a better job of getting the entire spread. So that would suggest that our this nutritional wisdom capacity that we have is, is quite nuanced and quite intelligent, you know, oriented towards efficient foraging, getting the most out of a meal. And so, th so these choices that we make are are based far more than just a need for calories. And in fact, do we, we, we still have this ability to nourish ourselves in an intuitive manner? Well, it's interesting if you consider that experiment that Fred Provenza did, because we tend to think of the thing that really, um, you know, is the important variable is the flavoring, the coconut or the maple. But if you think about it, the other kind of artifice of it was the fact, uh, this phosphorus that he was just pouring down their gullets, um, that was as much of a, um, a, a kind of a, a product of the experiment. And what it tells us is that it's not just flavors that have a, an effect on our eating behavior. It's the micronutrients as well. Well, that got me thinking about our habit of adding vitamins to things because it's very popular. It started with fortification, uh, the enrichment laws. But, um, but it, uh, in, in the United States, they have voluntary fortification. So companies can put um, vitamins in whatever they want. So, you know, Starbucks, for example, has an energy drink where they put in lots of vitamin B6. I think it's 200% of your um, required daily amount. I have no idea why anybody would need twice as much, but I guess people look at the label and think, wow, that must be twice as good as, you know, my actual need. Um, there's breakfast cereals that have, you know, loads and loads of vitamins in them. And I began to suspect, I thought, is this, is this always a good thing? And I'll be the first to say how absolutely kooky this sounds. You know, we have implicated so many things in our disordered relationship with food that to bring vitamins in, it's, it's like, the, you know, you know what's, the, what's next, water? 
But it turns out that there's a body of literature from animal science that I think really does shed light on this. And I think an important thing to, to state right off the bat is that one of the things we get wrong is that we think calories and vitamins are kind of in opposition to one another, that calories are bad, calories make us fat, and vitamins are good, they're vital, they are the, the distilled essence of the goodness of food. And that's wrong. Um, calories are necessary, you die without them, of course, many of us consume too many, but vitamins aren't simply good, they, they exist in a complicated relationship with the calories we consume. And what's most interesting about pellagra was that it was a deficiency of vitamin B3, niacin, and that's what was causing people to starve. But the actual diet that they ate was incredibly calorie rich. The diet that these poor Southerners were eating was grits. That's kind of like polenta. It's, it's a cornmeal that you turn into, turn into a kind of porridge with, with pork back fat and molasses. So we have carbs, fat, and sugar. That sounds like the very essence of a terrible junk food diet. And these people were starving. Why? Because they lacked vitamin B3. Vitamin B3, like many of the B vitamins, is involved in energy metabolism. So these people were consuming calories, but those calories were useless to their bodies because calories on their own don't equal energy. You need these B vitamins that unlock the energy potential. So I thought that's really interesting. Does that mean if you're consuming a diet high in calories, perhaps B vitamins are also playing a role? Well, I started to look at livestock diets because I got interested in that when I was doing my steak book. Um, one of the things that I'd been told, there's kind of this lore in the world of, of people who are kind of into heirloom farming, that one of the reasons that when cattle are in feedlots, they just endlessly eat this, um, this uh, high-carb corn um, diet that they're on is because it's deficient in their vitamins. So they're just eating and eating and eating because they never get satisfied. And I talked to a livestock nutritionist about that. And he said, that's totally wrong. If you make them deficient in a vitamin, they will, they will crater, they'll lose weight and they'll die. That in fact, their micronutrients are essential to create this artificial obesity in the farm animals that we raise. So I knew there's going to be something in the literature that, that um, shows this. And for years, I was looking specifically for the literature in pigs, because pigs are the most like us. But it was very difficult to find a search algorithm that would, would get me the, the research. Finally, somehow, the search algorithm in Google Scholar improved, and I found the research. And it takes us to pig farming in the 1950s. And what the pig farmers back then knew, well, like all pig farmers, they wanted to get their pigs big and fat quick, because the faster you can get them out the door, the sooner you can get a new load of pigs in, the more money you make. So they knew you can get your pigs fat if you feed them corn with soy. But they also knew if that's all you feed them, they're going to crater. They're going to get a nutritional deficiency. That's a disaster. So back then we pastured all our pigs. Or if we kept them in confinement, we would have to bring them green feed. Because they knew, they didn't know exactly what was going on. But there was something out there in that, in that farmer's field, it was usually alfalfa that they ate, that balanced the diet. So you could give them this rocket fuel, corn and soy, but they got to eat their alfalfa or they're going to die. Well, the discovery of vitamins changed farming forever. We talk about CAFOs and confinement and factory farms. None of this would be possible without the discovery of the essential vitamins, specifically the B vitamins. Because... You can see these experiments in the 50s where they start adding B vitamins to this, this what they call the hot ration, this calorie-dense ration, 
and it changed everything. The weight gain goes up. They get bigger, fatter, faster. And one of the most interesting um, studies I found was they looked at pigs given um, what's called a total mixed ration, where everything's blended together for them, versus a free choice ration, where they've got, you know, the corn in one trough and the vitamins over here in the other trough. And they looked at this in pigs in confinement versus pigs out there in the field. And the pigs that did the very best were the pigs in confinement, given the mixed ration, where their vitamins were added to their carbs, and boy, did they gain weight and put on fat quickly. But the most interesting thing was if you look at those pigs out there in the field, they gained weight the slowest. And I mean, it's not like they were sick or anything. I mean, up until a few years earlier, that was your cutting edge pig, was a pig out there in, in you know eating alfalfa and all that. But what's so interesting is they didn't eat their, um, you know, vitamin supplement. They ate the corn, but somehow they were getting their vitamins from somewhere else. And it's because they were eating alfalfa. So when their vitamins weren't being delivered along with the macronutrients, it's like it turned on this switch. And those piggies said, I feel like eating alfalfa. And we didn't see that in the other pigs. So this tells us two things. One is that if you want to achieve maximum weight gain, what, what, the pig, uh, what the animal scientists and the pig farmers call optimal weight gain, it's not just a matter of concentrated calories. You need the B vitamins so those calories can be metabolized. The denser the calories, the more the B vitamins you need. And the second thing is that it seems as though removing these B vitamins turns on this switch that gets these critters interested in foraging. Well, if you look at our own diet, if you look at humans, our our desired result is the very opposite of the pig farmers. We don't want to get big and fat too quickly. We, we want to limit that rate of gain. And yet when you look at what we've done to our diet, it looks very similar to what we did to uh, the creation of the hot ration in the 1950s. We add B vitamins to our processed carbs. And in this book, I ask the question, maybe that's not such a good idea because we all know that um, obesity is connected to the overconsumption of calories, but those calories would be metabolically useless if we, did also, if we didn't also have a commensurately high consumption of the B vitamins to turn those calories um, and make them uh, energetically useful to the human body. So it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, um, it has two effects. And one of them is it's making us crave those foods because we, um, because those foods now contain the nutrients, but also it stops us from going out and searching for those nutrients, uh, craving and seeking out those nutrients in healthier foods. Yes, exactly. That, that, that is the hypothesis that, that it's, it's, it's a, a more, hypercaloric diet that, that um, when you include the micronutrients along with the macros, it just makes weight gain more efficient. You have to do less foraging. There's more bang for every mouthful of food swallowed. But the other thing is this effect it's going to have on our, our, let's call it foraging in general, that the foods that you seek out, because we have to remember that humans are omnivores. We eat lots of different foods. Um, and it's only recently that we started adding micronutrients to processed carbs. And it was well intended. We were trying to get rid of a nutritional deficiency, but I think we didn't understand and we still don't understand how complex appetite and diet and, and how eating really works. Um, so I am going to push back a, a, against some of the things, but um, a couple of um, a couple of other really interesting points in the book that I want to make sure that we get to first. Um, the first one, which is, I think that you 
you answer a question, an argument that I have always had with people promoting the keto diet, mm-hmm. um, which is that the claim of keto diet enthusiasts is that um, the cause of American obesity is that Americans were told to eat low-fat, high-carb, and they cut down on their fat calories and dutifully ate more carbs and followed those dietary recommendations to the letter, and the dietary recommendations in themselves made them fat. And this has always seemed to me extremely unrealistic, um, having seen how many people in the US and increasingly, of course, here in Britain as well. I think we're second only to you guys as in being uh, porkers in more senses than one. As you said, pigs are the most similar to us. Um, but um, I, it seems seeing what they actually eat, that has always seemed to me like a, a very um, unrealistic hypothesis because I don't think people have, I don't think most people follow any form of nutritional guidelines to the letter. And I don't think Americans have, uh, during those years, Americans cut down on their, really cut down on their um, fat calories. And um, your work seems to justify my intuitions in that. Yes. In fact, um, it's a myth that we cut back on fat. If you look at the American diet in the 1980s, um, fat consumption just held even. Uh, carb, carb consumption did increase, but, but fat didn't go down. Um, and then, of course, um, we s- sort of took our gun sights. Instead of pointing, pointing it at fat, we then said carbs are the problem. And, um, you know, sugar consumption actually has reduced. I think it peaked in 1998. Um, there was a period where bread sales really flagged and pasta sales and so forth. But it, it seems it doesn't matter what we stop ourselves from eating. We find something else to eat. And I don't, like you, I don't think people follow nutritional guidelines. I don't think we're capable of doing it. Even though we think we understand calories and you know protein and all that, we don't. Uh, we do a very poor job of understanding our own needs, our own, our own output, our own intake. Uh, and what what guides our eating is our desire. We want to eat. And as we eat, we eat. It's, it, it comes from the gut. And I, I, I just don't think that explanation holds water. And I think the science has now shown that not to be true, that there really isn't much of a difference in the way the human body metabolizes carbs or fat. That, that is actually what is so astonishing is these two very different energy sources. The, di- the, the, the body uses them with such similar efficiency that there's really very little difference between the two of them. The other really fascinating experiment that you described in the book, um, which is um, part of your explanation of your hypothesis that we don't just seek out, um, for example, as many calories as possible, as much fat, as much sugar as possible. But what we're looking for, seeking for is a kind of, is a correlation between certain tastes that indicate high calorie, high fat, high sugar, and the amount of fat and sugar that is in the foods providing those tastes. And you talk about an experiment with three different kinds of um, sugar, water. Um, Could you retell that for us? Yeah, so I'll give it a little bit of background. And one of them is, and one of the things I push back on in the book is this idea that um, we're kind of tilted towards maximum calorie consumption out of the womb, that, that we evolved in an environment in which calories were scarce, and that there was some kind of advantage to, to consuming extra calories. And now we find ourselves in an environment where calories are everywhere and, and you know, our gooses are cooked. Uh, we just can't resist and we're all sort of done for. 
I think there's a lot of science that shows that this is not the case. Um, and so the, the brain really exerts, the, the brain is the one that decides how much we weigh. And one of the best uh, pieces of evidence we have for this is the fact that m- most diets for most people simply don't work. They work at the beginning. Um, people start to lose weight. Uh, the pounds really do melt off. They fit into their old genes and people stop them and say, you look great. What have you done? And they rave about this new diet. But it's around the six to eight month mark that things start to go the other way and the pounds start to come back. And this is how insidious it is. People blame themselves. They say the diet was working and I lost the willpower. I'm the one who failed. What's really happening is your brain is intervening and saying, I know you lost weight. I don't like that. I want you to gain the weight back. And it's, it's kind of similar to a starvation response. Um, it, only we're not starving, but it's as though the brain thinks we're starving. And you're thinking, okay, well, now you've just shown to me that we really do want calories. But it's not that simple because since the 1950s, scientists have been doing overfeeding studies where they take subjects and feed them too much food. And it turns out this is almost as miserable as starving. Um, Ethan Sims was the first scientist who tried to do this. He tried it with college students at a university. It didn't work. He, he couldn't get them to stick into the study. They just couldn't stand it. You know, you'd always think college students are always looking to, for a free meal and happy to eat, eat an extra meal. Was not the case. He had to go to a state prison. And even then he couldn't p- keep people in the study. And it seemed he could get them to gain weight. They'd have to eat a tremendous amount of food. And it seemed as though their bodies were burning extra fuel. And then when those, when those overfeeding um, experiments come to an end, just like dieting, the people snap back to their former weight. So the brain is not some kind of dumb idiot just stuffing its face. It has a pretty good idea of what's going on. And what we think of as taste and flavor, this sort of frivolous experience, to your brain, that is information. And I talk about an experiment that Kevin Hall did, where he gave, um, he, he looked at people being given a drug called canagliflozin, which diverts, I think it was diverting 350 calories of sugar into their urine. And for every pound they lost, there was an unconscious uptick in appetite until for every 360 calories they were losing, they were consuming, they were making up for it by consuming 350 calories. So they were within 10 calories. So that suggests the brain is is like this obsessive accountant that's really good at measuring. So um, what that tells me is that perhaps this capacity the brain has to measure and perhaps the flavor of food and the way food tastes, something we've always thought is disconnected from nutrition you know, beside the point, what really matters is the nutrients getting into your gut, your mouth, and what happens above the neck is just sort of a, a confusing mistake. Maybe not. So I'll, I'll talk about this experiment that Dana Small did. Um, she was contacted by Pepsi, uh, and they wanted to know if it was possible to create beverages that were just as rewarding, but had fewer calories. And, and wouldn't that be a great thing? Because then you can have these, these drinks you want to drink, and they're not giving all these calories. But it's an interesting question. How would you test such a thing? And this is what makes Dana a really good scientist. She came up with this really ingenious method. She created five different drinks. They all had a kind of their own flavor and color, but she used the artificial um, a sweetener sucralose so that each of these drinks was equally sweet. They all tasted like they had 75 calories worth of sugar. She then used a tasteless starch called maltodextrin to give each different drink a different calorie payload. So one had zero one had, I think it was 37, 75, 128, and 150. So you got five different drinks. They all taste equally sweet. They all have a different energy payload. She gave these drinks to her subjects. They, they you know, went out into the world. They drank them. Their brains, you know, measured what was coming in. Their brains formed opinions. 
And then she brought them back into the lab and she scanned their brains as they consumed each of these drinks. So before we get to the results, let's just ask ourselves a question and say, well, what do you think those brain scans would have revealed? Would the brains kind of, would all these brains get equally excited about every drink because the brain just cares about sweetness and they were all equally sweet? Or would the brain say, no, 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 it's that 150 calorie drink I love because I love calories. Well, it turned out it was neither. It was right down the middle. The 75 calorie drink got the biggest brain response. And like with the other drinks, not much happened, which was kind of weird. So Dana Small is confused, not what she expected. She then puts her subjects into an indirect calorimeter. This is a device that measures the thermic effect of food. So, so when you consume calories, your body has to start processing them and that generates heat. So this is sort of a textbook thing. The more calories you consume, the bigger the thermic effect. So one day a subject in her early 20s comes in and she drinks that 75 calorie drink and lovely little plume of feet, exactly what you'd expect. Everything's going according to plan. A few days later, she comes in and she drinks the 150 calorie drink. There should be a larger plume of heat. There's no heat. It's like she drank a cup full of air. And this is where Dana's going, what on earth is going on? And then she's struck by the number. And that number is 75 because the drink that got the biggest brain response and the drink that was metabolized properly was the drink that tasted like it had 75 calories, but it also had 75 calories. It was matched. The taste and flavor of that drink matched its nutritional payload. The other drinks were mismatched. And so what that tells us is that the information that the brain gets from food as we consume it is important. And also that accuracy is important, that futzing around with it maybe isn't such a good idea because those mismatched drinks were not metabolized properly. And she did further research that suggests that uh, there are troubling implications for, um, uh, you know, things associated with, with diabetes, like uh, how the body tolerates glucose. And she even did a study with teens that they had to stop early because uh, they drew blood from three subjects early on and two of them, the results looked as though they were pre-diabetic. So this really suggests as though the information that the brain gleans from food as it enters the body that we sense as we taste it is important and that mucking around with that has important implications. Now I'll make the point here. She looked at artificial sweeteners and I know a lot of people think the evidence they get artificial sweeteners is overblown. But the other point I want to make is that is just one amongst a whole arsenal of additives that alter the sensory nature of the food we eat. And that, that was a lot about what the Dorito effect was about. But this to me is an alarm saying mucking around with the way food tastes uh, is not a good idea. There's a reason that we have this very subtle and nuanced and powerful chemical sensing apparatus, the nose and also the tongue, and that we muck around with that at our peril. Thanks. So that's that's fascinating and very suggestive. I'm going to kind of get on to my questions now a little bit. Um, I should preface this by saying I'm absolutely with you on the idea that if you're going to consume calories, first of all, you might as well consume the most nutritious. And the most nutritious means foods closest to their natural state and also the most pleasurable. So I am absolutely in favor of eating real foods over franken foods. And even when I'm trying to lose weight, which I almost always am, we'll come on to that in a moment. I don't, for example, I don't eat reduced fat, um, anything. And I generally don't 
eat artificially sweetened anything. Um, I am a super taster. So I do find that aspartame and sucralose and those other substances, which supposedly taste sweet, they taste very bitter to me. But even if they didn't, even if I felt the artificially sweetened things tasted sweet, I, I still uh, tend to avoid anything that's been um, that I know that's been hyper-processed in that way. Got a number of kind of queries. The first is about a, a really simple and general one, which is that I very frequently hear about the set point and about the brain and body's desire to keep our weight um, within a certain margin. And of course, overfeeding studies in which you're given huge amounts more food than you want to eat are very unpleasant. People generally don't like to be absolutely stuffed. But nevertheless, what I don't understand is, if set point theory is true, why do most people not uh, maintain a weight within a, within a certain range all their lives, uh, when instead what we tend to see with many people, I think in the UK now with more than half of um, more than half of people in the UK are either overweight or obese. And with everybody in that group, what I see is a steady increase in weight. So, you know, this this year, you're 10 pounds heavier than you were five years ago. And in five years, you'll be another 10 pounds heavier. So there isn't, um, the weight then starts to come back off again when people get into their 70s and 80s in general. But there isn't set point theory would suggest staying within a certain range, whereas there doesn't seem to be, there may be up regulation, but there doesn't seem to be any down regulation. And there also, while people might find overconsumption unpleasant when it's a large amount at one time, just a little bit of overconsumption on a constant basis is something people seem to find actually very pleasurable. Um, and that's why they, that may be, may well be one of the reasons why we see most people's weight steadily climbing rather than staying constant. So that's my first question. How does the set point theory explain the gradual increase in most people's weight? Because it's a great question. And that was the central question I had, you know, I started to do this research. I thought, well, you know, what's going wrong here? Because if you think about it also, there are good reasons not to weigh too much from a sort of evolutionary point of view. You know, you're not going to be good at accelerating. So harder to catch prey, easier to become prey. But here's what nobody talks about. Um, if you're carrying extra calories around, that comes at a high caloric cost. The same way if you drive a big car, you need to put more gasoline or you'd call it petrol. If your body's bigger, you need to consume more calories just to lug around and maintain those extra calories. So if calories really were so scarce and precious when we were evolving, then one of the dumbest things you could do is, is lug around 20 pounds of extra calories because you've got to consume lots of calories just to keep that, those extra calories. Mm. So mm. that was one of my biggest curiosities. And this is the hypothesis of the book is that there are things we've done to our food that are interfering with the set point. Now, what, what we see when we look at brain scans of people with obesity, um, contrary to the stigma, it's not that they enjoy food too much. It's that they desire food too much. Um, and that is what I began to look at. And that's where this, this um, research that I mentioned of Dana Smaltz plays into it. Because what we have created 
if, if you think of the sensory aspects of food is nutritional information, what we have done with sensory technology is we've taken information that was formerly reliable and we have made it unreliable. We've made it uncertain. So think of the sweet signal. Sweetness always was quite reliable. Might have been hard to get that sweet fruit, but when you got your hands on those cherries or the peach or the fig, it didn't tell a lie. The sweeter it was, the more calories it contained. Uh, same was true with fat. Well, now we have created all sorts of additives that essentially fool the brain. They're designed to evoke the experience of sweetness, of fat, of flavor, of, of you name it, only you don't get what you thought you're going to get. So if, if some scientists talk about the brain as though it's a prediction engine, that, that it, and you want to think about your brain, it's, it's sort of locked inside the skull. And the only relationship with food, the eating part of your brain, it, it doesn't read diet books. It doesn't look at the nutritional info. The only relationship it has with food is what it can sense. It senses food as it comes into the body, how it tastes, but it does further sensing. Uh, there are sensors in the stomach, all through the digestive tract. It even measures if the food was burned properly. So now for the first time since, you know, in the history of our species, I think in the, maybe the history of the earth, but let's just keep it to us. We've created food that gives a different signal in the mouth than it does in the rest of the body. So we have created a sensory experience that is uncertain. So we can ask a simple question. What does this prediction-obsessed brain do when it starts to get um, information that is uncertain? Well, most people would think, well, we just sort of lose interest and say, I can't rely on you anymore. But if you look at the psychology on this, uncertainty has a very predictable result, not just in humans, but in all, you know, so many animals, it causes extra motivation. It makes us want to act. It makes us want to get the thing that's become uncertain. And this makes sense from an evolutionary point of view, because uncertainty whispers the prospect, you might not get this. And if that keeps happening with something important, there's a bigger chance you're going to die. So what evolution gave us is not this unending desire for calories. It's the way we respond to uncertainty. We get extra motivated to get that uncertain thing. And that is what we see in the brain scans. We see that people are hyper-motivated to consume calories because we're getting mixed messages about what the sensory information of calories, what that information, how reliable that information is. So, so the theory, my theory, my approach is that uh, this, this set point tendency is being corrupted by food that is altering the brain's relationship with the food that we eat. Um, it's a really fascinating hypothesis. And um, I think there, there may be truth to it, but I am going to just um, continue to give some counterexamples. Um, one of the things is you, you talk a lot about Italian food culture um, within your book. And I should probably explain because of my strange and counterintuitive name um, to listeners and to you and anybody who doesn't know. Um, although my name is Italia, I'm not Italian um, in any um, in any genetic sense. And um, as far as I know, sadly, there are no Italians in my ancestry. Um, when Parsis, Indian, um, so my ancestry is Indian Parsi, and Parsis didn't have, didn't um, routinely use surnames um, traditionally. They went by patronymics in a somewhat similar way to the way Icelanders do today. So it would be Mark, son of Thomas, or, or whatever. And uh, it was 
really during the nineteenth um, century that Parsis took on surnames, and many of them took on surnames ending in Walla, which means man in the sense of person of that profession, like postman or male uh, mailman. You would say in uh, North America. I can hear that you're you're clearly um, Canadian, Mark, right? Yes. Um, and. I almost said American there. I, I apologize if I've okay. accused you of being American at any point during this talk. Please, you evaded a, a very expensive lawsuit. <laughs> um, so, um, a walla means man, and the original surname was Ita Walla, and it was spelt with a with a double L. And then there must have been some typo somewhere, and it got corrupted into Italia. So Ita Walla is literally brick man, um, i.e. like a, a, a mason. Um, so that's why my surname is Italia. If you look on Facebook, you can, is probably the easiest way to, um, to see this illustrated. If you look up people with a surname Italia on Facebook, you will find they all have really, uh, they all look rather Indian and have really weird first names like Nilufer and Scheherazade and Xerxes and Cyrus and things. Those are my people, the Parsis. Um, so I'm, I'm not Italian. Um, and I am, I, I have a dual, um, UK and Argentine citizenship. Um, you know, I'm a complete muddle of nationalities and ethnicities. Um, and the Argentines, Buenos Aires was, largely settled by Italians. Um, so there's a, a huge Italian population uh, or population with Italian ancestry in Buenos Aires. And um, I'm going to, uh, how shall I organize these stories? So first of all, I spent a fair amount of time in Italy and in fact in Bologna. And so I'm very familiar with the food culture there. It's absolutely wonderful. It's worth visiting Italy for so many reasons, and the delicious food is one of them. But it's definitely also the case that um, after I left, each time after visiting Italy and having eaten only truly delicious home-cooked um, Italian food and Italian food at very good restaurants, and having not eaten a crisp or a chocolate bar or a burger or any kind of junk for months, I definitely did come back weighing four or five kilos more and having to undo the top button of my jeans when I sat down. So there's no uh, just eating, um, just eating good, nutritious, traditional foods, including Italian foods is not in itself any kind of magic means of weight loss. Um, the other thing I would say is that Argentines, I have been wondering whether there is a, uh, a genetic component to the slenderness of Italians because Argentines are also, um, well, porteños in particular, not Argentines in the country in general, but specifically and pretty much only porteños, um, have a, ve have very low rates of obesity. And are a pretty skinny population, especially the women, and also have a lot of Italian ancestry. And what they don't have is an Italian food culture. So as, as many of you who've traveled in Latin America might know, 
Um, Argentina is somewhat of a food desert. The steaks are good and the red wine is good. Um, but mo- most of the other food is of really poor quality. Fruit and vegetables are of terrible quality there. Often kind of, um, often sort of, um, wilting or half rotting, um, by at the point of sale. And also Argentines rely extremely heavily on very low quality, um, processed foods. So it's, it's not, it's not usual to eat, um, for example, just a normal unsweetened yogurt. Uh, it's always fruit flavored and artificially sweetened yogurt. It's very artificial breads and biscuits are a huge part of the diet. Um, also kind of white bread with this processed ham and processed cheese, very similar to Velveeta toasted called a tostado mixto. Um, I apologize to any Argentines who are listening, but Argentine food quality is pretty bad. Um, uh, however, Argentines are skinny. And the counter example, um, that I know personally from my own life is Indian food. Now, of course, there are, um, around 5% of Indians live below the poverty line or, and are actually going, are actually undernourished, are actually going hungry. And that's millions of people. But India now has a huge, uh, population of middle class Indians or middle class by Indian standards who don't suffer from food insecurity, who definitely have enough to eat and weight gain is a huge problem. And Indian cuisine is probably the most sophisticated, the most delicious in the world. And there's a very strong prejudice towards um, eating home cooked food, um, making everything from scratch and eating at restaurants where everything is also made from scratch. So I think that this this correlation between good food and um, a good and kind of natural food, which I agree is, I agree that it's absolutely worth eating that food instead of processed junk, but I don't completely buy the kind of correlation between that and slenderness. And I'm going to just add an, uh, from my own life, my own personal experience over lockdown. So I live with four housemates and um, two of them in particular are completely obsessed with food and cookery. So one of my housemates has, um, he is a primary school teacher, but he has been thinking of um becoming a professional chef or running a catering business for a living because he is absolutely passionate about uh, food. And um, one of my other housemates um, is also equally passionate about food. I mean, they will spend days reading recipes. Um, They like to make everything from scratch. These are people who make their own yogurt with cultures and who bake their own bread. and we, we get our, um, they get their meats and cheeses from an, um, organic farm collective. Um, they get organic vegetables and they, we also grow vegetables and fruit in our own garden. It's really high quality food. And they both specialize in traditional, mostly French food, sometimes Italian, but mostly French cuisine 
with lots of butters and cheeses. They like to have a cheese course. They, um, in our house, we only dark chocolate and we have very high quality, lovely chocolates. And over lockdown, there was a kind of natural experiment that happened to me. And I am a person who gains weight easily and who has to really, my weight is just, just within healthy, um, range on the on the cusp between healthy and overweight and i have to really fight to keep it there to keep it from um gradually moving up into the overweight and even eventually into the obese bracket so i may not be typical in this but over lockdown um for a good at least 8 months nearly probably more like 10 months we were uh we were at home every single night and we were eating meals together pretty much every night and taking it in turns to cook for each other. And we got into this habit of eating these extremely indulgent um, evening meals. And uh, very frequently we had three-course meals with wine, with cheeses. I don't regret it at all. It was a lovely time. It was absolutely wonderful eating with the boys every night. We had fantastic conversations. And um, it was the most beautifully convivial experience. Um, but also I gained 20 kilos. 20, not mm-hmm. pounds, yeah, kilos. Yeah, no, that's, that's substantial. Um, so, and it has taken me a year to lose the weight um, with really, a really, really concerted effort. And um, my housemates continue to eat much less indulgently because lockdown has ended and now we eat together once a week or sometimes once every two weeks. Um, and, um, the rest of the, the rest of the time, um, you know, I'm, I'm eating whole foods and trying to just also keep calories down. But, um, my housemates are, Three of my four housemates are obese um, on that diet, and they are not fans of junk food or processed foods. Um, so some counterexamples for you to, uh, for us to talk about. Sure. No, no. And listen, those are important. Challenged your hypothesis. <laughs> listen, so... As far as Indian food, it's difficult for me to comment on India or Argentina because I, I just don't know a lot about those cultures. I don't know about their fortifying. I don't know their rates of the, uh, consumption. Oh, of Arge- Argentines food. fortify absolutely everything, absolutely everything. Um, and I, I would say a few things about a uh, um, couple of things about Argentines, which habits which I think they have in common with the Italians, which is that people are. Um, first of all, there's pressure to be thin because people are thinner there. So if you are even a little bit chubby, you stand out. Whereas when I go to the States, I pass for slender because, um, so many people are overweight or obese. Um, and I'm just a kind of chubby, normal weight person. But in art, in Buenos Aires, I look fat and I feel fat compared to other people. And if I go to a, a shop, I can't find trousers that fit me. Um, I would have to shop in the equivalent of their plus size stores. And here in the UK, I wear a size 10, which is a US size four, to give you an idea. So there is a social pressure and there's also um, a large tendency for people to do a kind of 
sort of um, unofficial, almost intermittent fasting. So many of my women friends would just smoke and drink mate, which is this caffeinated herbal drink all day, um, and then have a big um, steak in the evening. But the overall calories in the day were quite small. And I certainly noticed women in Italy doing that too, having just a cappuccino in the morning, and then maybe a few cigarettes and more coffees during the rest of the day, and then not eating until the evening. So um, those, I think, also might be um, might be factors. Yes, Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll is, stop interrupting now. No, no, it's fine. But the question is, is, is that, that that's a description, but does that explain the behavior? You know, mm, people say, well, yeah, Italians don't snack. Um, and yeah, they don't snack. But is it do they don't snack because they have this rigid self-control? Or are they just not hungry to snack? I just don't think they mm, feel like snacking. Mm. I think, I think you know, when you see North Americans snacking, it's because for hum- some reason they're getting hungry in the middle of the day. I don't associate Italian culture with rigid self-control. I think famously mm, it's, mm. it's anything but. <laughs> um, um, it's, it's, I, it's very difficult for me to con- comment on India or Argentina just without, just sure, without doing sure. more research. It's, it, it's certainly compelling. But, I, but also what I was looking at in this book is what changed in North America. Um, mm, our food course. environment is, is different from India, certainly. The, 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 your, your experience during COVID is also interesting. Uh, and I don't think unique. I've heard many similar stories. Um, but, but what, so one of the things I talk about in the book is the effect of uncertainty. And one of the things I hypothesize is that uncertainty in, in the, in our food can team up with uncertainty in, in, um, other, for, you know, other, other aspects of our life. So there is an association between poverty and obesity. And I think one of the reasons is that, um, and there's been a lot of work done on that is that, um, people who face a more uncertain food future are probably there there legitimately is an incentive to consume extra calories and there's lots of animal experiments that show this well there's all sorts of forms of uncertainty you know if your parents are going through a divorce if you start a new school so the covid was also a time of uncertainty um fear um very abrupt different changes in our social relationships that could have played in but the other thing i'll say is that this is not an all-encompassing theory of every single case of obesity obesity mm-hmm. existed before the 1960s in north america um this book seeks to explain the change what changed in our food environment that would cause us to have a different relationship with food so i don't think it's a resolving lens that explains every single case of this person's relationship i know many anecdotes of people who've moved to france or italy and lost weight and I was going to include that in the book, but I decided not to just because it was not scientific. Sure, uh, sure. And your anecdote is different. Um, so, um, and I think also, I think this has more resolving power when we see how things like the set point or a, 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 let's say a, an appetite that should be within a kind of a certain range gets distorted. Um, as to how to fix that, I'm not sure if it's a, it's just a simple quick case of like, well, I'll just stop eating ultra processed food and and the pounds will just start to, to drop away. Um, I think that's something we need to look at and look at how we can make foods more satisfying. Um, but I think the challenge of losing weight, that is very difficult. And I think the more important thing to do as a society is figure out a way not to get there in the first place. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, the N equals one um, anecdotes are, um, they're not useful from a scientific point of view. Um, but it is from a, from a weight loss point of view, 
anything you try that works for you, um, that's all you need. You yes. know, you only need it to work for you. So therefore, if switching away from processed foods works for you, that's great. And it's something I would recommend anyway, because you only have one life. I'm much, ha I'm happy that I gained weight, um, by creating all these wonderful memories and relation and, you know, intensifying my friendships with my, the friends I live with and just having a lovely, um, experience of many wonderful dinners rather than gained it from binging on Pringles and Ben and Jerry's or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that was very fortunate. So there's no, to me, there's no downside to switching to the more delicious foods. And, um, I tend to agree with you that it, you may find that the more delicious the, um, food, the more truly delicious food, the more kind of complex natural foods may bring you a satiation that stops you from constantly seeking more food or feeling hungry um, on it. That may help. And um, if not, at least you're eating better food. <laughs> well, it, it also may stop you from future gain. I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. interesting because we tend to be obsessed with with massive, you know, eye-popping weight loss. And certainly many people would like that. But But many of the professionals I speak to, they say, listen, if I can just stop these people from gaining future weight, because when they come and see me, they're on a trajectory for 10 pounds a year. That's a huge win. So it's hard to know exactly what we've achieved. Um, and we, sent, we tend to have a particular goal in mind, but you know, there's so much more going on. The, the one thing I think I would say, though, is I think for any, you know, I, I visited a woman named Anya Hilbert. Uh, she's she's um, a researcher in Germany who, who deals with disordered eating, specifically with um, obesity, although she does have some training in, in um, you know, binge eating and anorexia. And she said, you can't just accept, expect people to give up their relationship with food. It is, it, it is an incredibly pleasure-driven relationship. And to just expect people to walk away from a cold turkey and become these robots who just consume a particular amount of calories when their calculator tells them to do that is, is totally unrealistic. That's not how we're wired. So I think one thing that's very important is for people to find, you know, I, I obviously agree with the idea we should... We should eat real food and like Italians eat for flavor, but, but, but food has to satisfy you. You have to have a positive relationship with it. My hope is we can find ways to undo the damage. Um, and, and Anya Hilbert certainly had some patients that have had po positive results, not, not eye popping, you know, I lost 60 pounds in three months. That, that doesn't happen, but there are people who do improve their relationship with food. I think, um, for me, um, the thing that is always underestimated is just um, the sheer power of hunger. Um, that hunger is clearly something absolutely deep-rooted because food is necessary to our survival. And the thing that, for me, always makes the thing that makes my weight creep back up and the thing that makes weight loss difficult and the thing that I am always struggling with to keep my weight within a normal um Health bra healthy bracket, which I do, um, is I I do, but with a great deal of kind of effort expended, um, is um, hunger, and I think that people who don't um, struggle with their weight um, often suspect that it's craving in the sense of wanting specific foods or um, having an urge to have specific tastes 
or feeling bored or wanting kind of comfort or, and all of those things do play a role, but you can, it's very easy to uh, get past all of those things. You're craving ice cream, you can have a fruit instead. Um, if you are feeling bored, you can, um, you can read a book instead or in my place, in my case, I play chess. Um, if you are feeling you need comfort, I mean, there, there are many things that you can substitute for all of those things. But, um, the real problem is hunger and the, the kind of symptoms that go along with it, the mild headache, the irritableness, the nausea, um, all of those sorts of feelings. Um, and, um, I, um, I definitely also find that the brain and body are quite, are quite good at telling how many calories you have. At least in my case, I have ingested that my body is not fooled if I'm hungry by my giving it a large plate of steamed vegetables. It's like, okay, that's great. Now, what are we going to eat? Um, uh, you know, just, just kind of trying these fixes like, drinking more water or eating more volume or um they are it's a very limited value because um when you are hungry what you are craving is nutrition and calories and that is a much more difficult problem to to solve because if i do eat in such a way that um i'm not having quite intense hunger for periods that are long enough to be uncomfortable every day then my weight goes steadily up. And I'm pretty sure I'm not, I'm not alone in that. So that is, that is a, for me, that's a huge, that's a huge quote unquote elephant in the room. Um, that we haven't found a way to ef effectively tackle yet. Well, I, I would say we're, we're getting some positive signs with some of the new drugs, the, the GLP one agonists. So what, what is that GL? It's it's essentially a satiety hormone that's released when we eat food, and we're finding that um, drugs that imitate this um, seem to be effective in promoting long term pretty pretty spectacular weight loss. Oh, um, that'd it, be good. That sounds think excellent. It's probably going to be more for, used for severe cases. It's not sort of like you know everyone wants this little diet pill, like I pop this pill and I lose ten pounds and I can eat at McDonald's every day. I, I, that's probably not going to happen. Not the way to think about it. But it is showing that there there are ways that we can affect this system. But what I would say, as far as this idea that um, an outsized feeling of desire, of craving, its association um, with obesity and disordered eating, it's what we see in the literature in terms of it being predictive of future weight gain. I mm. think what then mm. happens over time when people maintain an elevated body weight, that that becomes their new set point, And it's really hard to fight that. Um, but it should also be said that this is an area where there's still much that we need to learn. One of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because the conversation we've been having, this simple idea that it's fat or that it's carbs, or that there's this easy diet, you can do this, I don't think explains it. And I think the thing we've done the worst job of is understanding the experience of eating, that we consign flavor and taste to this sort of rubbish bin and think that we're all nutritionists and we can just start manipulating food. And the sensory aspect of eating is not only incredibly fulfilling and enjoyable, but it also affects the way your brain forms its relationship with food. And I, 
I, I don't think we can ignore it. And I think it's playing a stronger role than, than people have thus far given credit. And, and science is emerging that shows that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, that seems like a good place to end, unless there is something that you have hoped to be able to say that I haven't given you an opportunity to say, or hope uh, that I would ask that you would have wanted to answer. No, I, I guess the only thing, I mean, maybe I'm repeating myself. It's the thing I find so interesting, you know, one thing we didn't talk about is behaviorism and, and our tortured mm. relationship with understanding pleasure. And so I'll talk about it and you can delete it if it's boring, but I think it's No, no, it will not be boring. Um, <laughs> I have faith. So mid-20th mid century psychology was dominated by Freudians and behaviorists. And we all know the Freudians, their beliefs in the Oedipus complex and repression and so forth. But then there were behaviorists and they were just staunch scientists and they rejected all that depth psychology. They thought it was rubbish. A lot of it was rubbish. And they wanted to be true scientists and measure. They wanted to measure. And internal states like pleasure and happiness were not measurable. These were just internal experiences. Uh, it was like the Easter bunny. It, it was just sort of a made up thing. What could be measured was behavior. So um, when we talk about something being pleasurable, that's just sort of mumbo jumbo. They wanted to know what will we do? So you could look at something like thirst and, and a silly human would say, well, water's delicious when you're thirsty. And they say, no, 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 what that delicious, that doesn't make any sense. Let's look at the rodent and see what it will do when it's thirsty. How many electric shocks will it endure? How many blocks will it climb to get to the water bowl? How much water will it consume? What is the density of salinity in its blood? And what is that its relationship to what this rat will do? So they came up with drive reduction theory. So what we call pleasure was to them just this annoying drive that we want to make go away. Why do we drink water? Because we want to make the thirst drive, which is unpleasurable, go away. Why do we eat? Because we want to make hunger go away. Why do we have sex? Because we want to make the this oppressive sexual urge go away. Um, it's a very negative view of human existence in that it doesn't seem to find anything positive. Uh, everything's just negative. Um, and I think there, there is a ghost of, of this kind of behaviorist thinking still lingering. When we talk about certain junk foods being hyper palatable, I think this is not embracing the complexity and ver you know, variation in the experience of eating. Scientists can do this great job of saying why we eat too much pizza. They can't explain why, you know, there's this town, Treviso in Italy, that has a festival of, of this, you know, bitter brassica, radicchio. They love it. This defies this whole idea that we're just all in it for the calories. I've had discussions with scientists. I say, because I don't even know how they could go about quantifying what we think of as quality in food. If they talk about pizza, they talk about having carbs and fat and salt. Um, and I say, well, what about the difference between a microwave pizza and a Neapolitan pizza? And they say, well, you like the Neapolitan pizza because you were in your honeymoon and the sun was setting and some guy with an English accent and beautiful hair gave you this wonderful pizza. And I really don't think it's that simple. Mm, I think no. there are aspects to the quality of food that really challenge our ability to observe and quantify and understand. So I just really like to push back at this idea that pleasure is addictive and that foods that make us eat too much are the most pleasurable. I think there is so much more to the experience of eating. And I think there, there really are positive things out there 
that that it's it's not as simple as you know eat with the Italians and and you'll lose weight. But the the you know I talk about Japanese people as well. The Japanese are incredibly food obsessed. They take ingredients extremely seriously. Their food is amazing. I spent ten days in Japan and I struggled to find a bad meal. I ate a rice ball on a train, raw fish on a train. If you did that in Canada, you'd probably die. And it was amazing. So I I I, I guess what I would implore people to do is take a more open minded approach to our sophisticated brain and what food is and how we can enjoy it and form a healthy relationship with it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Japanese do also have one of the world's highest rates of anorexia. Um, and I do remember when, when I was, when I spent time there, um, people's obsession with how many calories were in the food. And a lot of the Japanese food is very good food and also quite low in calories. Um, and the women in particular would always order sashimi rather than rice bowls because they didn't want the calories from the rice. And so it's, um, I think their food culture is rather different from the Italian food culture. Um, and the food itself is also different. And actually, Japan is one of the places where, um, I just ate to satiety and I actually lost weight whilst I was there. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with, the actual food itself. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting quality. point. I was contacted by a woman who loved my book, and she said that she'd sort of gone on a Korean diet, and and she said the diet, you know, the food's wonderful, and she'd lost a lot of weight. So there could be this idea that uh, maybe you need to find the real, delicious, satisfying food that fits you best. Um, oh yeah, that's what that's absolutely what I recommend to people who are trying to lose weight. Um, you know, try to find the things that you most enjoy eating that uh, are not too high calorie or, you know, that you are able to feel satisfied with in a portion that's not going to give you too many calories. If I had to give one piece of advice, that that would be my my advice. Um, uh, but yeah, you, the hunger thing still still kind of remains, though. <laughs> so um, it it remains a Hunger and satiety remain, I th I think, personally, probably the two biggest ones. Um, and I don't deny that. But I guess the way I would see it, that that is evidence of, of, a syst of a system that's become disordered. And I think that, you know, I wish I could snap my fingers and change it. I'm one of the very lucky people. I, I, and I'm lucky. I eat whatever I want to satiety and I maintain but 172 pounds, it doesn't really budge. It goes up one day by pound, down the next day by two. It's, it's, it's one of those things. So I think there's no question we have interfered with a system that worked well. Um, and the question is, can we get to the bottom of how that happened? And it, it'll take a long time, but fix the damage that we've done. Mm, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure chatting. Yeah, pleasure has been all mine. Um, and uh, everybody who's listening, may you all stay as slender as you wish to. <laughs> and uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, 
And please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week.